No, we've not been hacked. This is episode 17 of the Classic Lenses podcast, and you've probably guessed it by now, this is a Soviet Union special. Joining me today are Carl Havens in Gainesville, Florida. Hello, Carl. Good morning, Simon. And we have Johnny Sisson in Chicago. Hello, Johnny. Good morning, everyone. And this week, joining us from Buffalo Grove near Chicago, we're joined by the legendary collector of Soviet cameras and lenses and the founder of the Vintage Camera Collectors Facebook group, Vladislav Kern. Hello, Vlad. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Last week, Johnny and Carl talked about their current favourite lenses and kit, and I did another flawed lens lens test on a few Fast 50 Sonars. So, as usual, here's Johnny to bring us up to date with the feedback from last week. Yeah, right. So, uh, last week, we, again, as Simon said, we talked about uh, Star Wars Pankalars. We talked about uh, a bunch of different sonars and something that might be a sonar that Simon has um, and Simon's test. Uh, we got uh, a lot of feedback from that. Uh, James Giordano uh, mentioned a bit about light meters. Um, so, we talked about different light meter options uh and how that feeds into simon's fear of shooting his hasselblad because he needs the right light meter the right film the right lighting the right situation so uh good feedback on light meters you might want to take a look through that conversation if you're um, interested in those uh clive sims had a great comment about um geza's episode uh where he mentioned that the um the no rules uh, the no rules rule <laughs> that that Geza has about exploring photography was helpful for him. So that's a good one. Um, and then we had a commenter. I'm going to try to, uh, I guess, spell this phonetically. It's N1K0NK, which maybe is supposed to say Nikon or something, commented that we talk too fast and he can't understand us. Um, so maybe he can clarify his name and we'll try to talk slower. Um, and then uh, we also had some conversation in photography with classic lenses that last week on a number of different topics. One that uh, I think is apropos to today's conversation and maybe we can um, talk about a bit was the confusion, ongoing confusion that some folks have about uh, LTM versus M39 lenses. Um, which I think, like I said, will probably come up in today's episode since a lot of that confusion has to do with lenses from the former Soviet Union um, and the uh, the mounting and register distance of those lenses, uh, especially when adapting them onto uh, digital cameras. So we will talk a bit about that. All right. So uh, back over to you, Simon. Right. Well, as, you, as you've already heard, we've got uh, Vlad on the show, um, which pretty much after the Mike, F- Mike Ekman episode, uh, this, this now makes this episode two of Johnny Talks to His Hero series. Um, so, uh, Johnny, perhaps uh, you could give Vlad a proper introduction. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to try. And the reason I say I'm going to try is because I feel like every time I talk to Vlad, I learn something that I didn't know about him or some other thing that he's involved in that he does, which is really cool. Uh, but so I, I've known Vlad, I guess, for well, first online through vintage camera collectors, which um, Vlad can maybe tell the story about that, that he he sort of accidentally founded several years ago and is now, I, I guess, one of the probably the top uh Facebook groups on Facebook about vintage cameras, certainly um, when they're not talking about vintage carpets. Uh, so there's, there's that. And then Vlad's also the founder of USSRphoto.com, which is a great collector's resource for Soviet equipment. That's been around for, I guess, 10 or 12 years. Um, and, and, you know, Vlad is just done it to me is an amazing 
source of knowledge about everything related to Soviet and former Soviet Union cameras and equipment and history. And um, I, I just thought it'd be fascinating if we could have a conversation, you know, here on the podcast. And I'm, I'm just, I'm thrilled that he's joined us. So, um, so that is an introduction to Vlad and uh, I guess we'll take it from there. Yeah. Well, thanks, Johnny. That was quite an introduction. <laughs> uh, yeah, and as you mentioned, um, I started collecting myself about like 12 years ago. That's about the time when I started uh, USSRphoto.com uh, website. I mean, it's pretty, pretty interesting also how that happened because when I started, there was no English-based uh, resources on the internet about uh, Soviet cameras. I mean, just to give a little bit of background about myself, originally I'm from uh, Republic of Georgia, which so I was born in the USSR <clears throat> and uh, moved to US some sometime around um, high school time. And um, I mean, so that kind of gave, gave me a unique perspective of knowing both Russian and English. And um, so I kind of knew the best of both worlds and kind of being nostalgic at some point around uh, year 2004, I picked up an old, uh, I think it was a Zenit one of my friend's uh, garage. He just bought it on eBay just for fun. Uh, after holding it in my hands, I totally realized I have to uh, start collecting. Uh, and since then I went to eBay and found uh, uh, a magnificent, magnificent seller. Um, his name was Alex Komarov. There's another huge story about this guy, and he um, he sold me quite a few cameras for a really good price. I mean, I was getting boxes of like 15, 20 cameras at a time. Um, and uh, since then, it just went kind of downhill or uphill, <laughs> however you want to put it. Um, I would start getting more and more Soviet cameras and um, and start to research them, and there's just nothing. I mean, on, on the English-based uh, sites, uh, I found a few collectors here and there in Europe and U.S. that uh, had uh, really good information, but there was really no forums except for rangefinder forum that primarily focused just on, like, on the rangefinder aspect of the cameras. So, I mean, I am... Uh, I'm a web web developer by profession, so I decided let me just start a website and forum just as, as a wiki and a forum for Soviet camera collectors. I started this and all of a sudden it exploded because everybody who was English speaking and uh, wanted to collect the Soviet cameras started getting on the forum, including all the guys who spoke uh, English in uh, former Soviet Union territories. So it was an amazing exchange of information we even met for a congress, let's say, of our members in uh, in Bievers in France, one of the camera shows there, which is absolutely amazing when they close down the little town and everything, just old cameras everywhere. Um, so after, after that, um, shortly after that, I, I started um, a little Facebook group called Vintage Camera Collectors. I mean, I just registered the name when the groups just appeared in Facebook. Uh, the feature and totally forgot about it. Uh, in about a couple of years, I come back, there's around 350, 350 people or so talking, conversing. There's no admins except for me and there's tons of spam. I cleaned it up and again, the group exploded. So it's kind of like a series of fortunate accidents that kind of gave a jumpstart to my site and to, to this group. Um, so, so Vlad, you've been heavily involved in um, 
putting the information out there, um, in particularly on the in the on the internet, uh, with uh, about Soviet uh, camera equipment, uh, because there was quite a bit out there, perhaps or presumably on with Russian language, but not certainly in English, and that's that's something you played a big part in. Um, I'm just wondering if we could if we could use your knowledge now and go back uh, more or less to the to the start of the Soviet uh, camera era and uh, perhaps you could take us on a little journey from from the early days and uh, we can just move forward and perhaps we can ask you a few questions along the way now I'm sure I mean uh, since this is a one spot podcast I mean uh, I could probably go into bit go a little bit into the story of the um, lens and optical glass in Soviet Union. I mean, the story actually uh, starts much earlier than the camera production in USSR. Um, <clears throat> the optical glass, let's start about uh, early 20th century, um, around the time of uh, World War One, when um, all the world powers were at war and the optics were a very high commodity. Um, so before the revolution, the the basically created Soviet Union. Um, the optical glass was uh, pretty much cooked by only about three companies in the world. I, I think um, it was uh, a French company called Paré Matois. Uh, then there was a shot by a German company in Vienna, and there was the Chance Brothers in UK. So these are the only three companies that actually knew how to develop optical glass because it had to have the very clear properties and it was drastically different. I mean, you couldn't have any bubbles in it. So, um, and during the World War, um, the First World War, uh, the uh, all, all these little companies that exported their glass to, to Russia, it was still the Tsarist Russia, um, they basically stopped, they were sh having shortage of the glass needed for military themselves and they basically stopped uh, exporting to Russia. So Russia was really at disadvantage because they really ran out for, uh, of uh, all the optics for their army. And um, so the, uh, the Tsar decided that he wanted uh, to start making optical glass himself. And that's one then, like, uh, there was an engineer, optical engineer and a scientist, um, his name was Nikolai Kachalov. Uh, he came into the scene, um, basically what they did, there was a porcelain factory in St. Petersburg and they were uh, they were doing glass and it was regular glass. So they were making uh, dishes and, uh, but they weren't doing optical glass. So this guy came in into the factory and said, I'm gonna um, basically try to develop the optical glass uh, formulas here. Um, and, um, uh, and we will basically want to produce uh, glass for our military. And uh, at first, uh, the factory wasn't very like happy about it because uh, they really didn't need like another line of production. But uh, the the military insisted, and so they bought. Uh, from what I understand, I mean, there's a few sources uh, on this authority, and from what I was told, they were they bought some ovens from a uh, German company, Gertz. Uh, and uh, and based on that, they, they basically started uh, they started doing their own glass in, in uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, but shortly after the revolution, the production stopped uh, because of the um, communist regime. And in 1918, uh, the Red Army realized they needed more uh, optics. And they went back and resurrected the factory in St. Petersburg. And they actually um, 
established uh, the, the state optical institute called GOI. Uh, and this, this institute would like basically develop the formulas uh, for, um, for, for, how do you call it, for calculation, calculation formulas to actually create lenses. Um, but the problem was that uh, nobody, uh, they, they had problems with uh, creating really high quality glass because of the way that it's, it's boiled, they take the big, big pots and they, they uh, melt the quartz sand and do some, and with some additives. Okay, so the Goya Institute resurrected this St. Petersburg factory and basically took, took uh, kind of, this factory became like a testing grounds for this research institute. Um, the, the, the institute basically, um, starts heavily investing into development of the optical glass in USSR. And uh, they they got, uh, by 1923 or, or so, they already got like a production department uh, going in, in the St. Petersburg, uh, former St. Petersburg porcelain factory. And they were, they were actually cooking glass, but all of a sudden something happened. And uh, they started getting uh, little bubbles in the glass and they didn't know what to do. So, uh, and they, they had nobody to ask like about the technology. I mean, they were following the old technology um, to cook glass from that they purchased before the revolution. Uh, they actually paid about uh, in today's uh, money, maybe I would say $25 million from uh, to Chance Brothers in UK to get the formula how to cook optical glass. Uh, they would, uh, it, the secret was it's actually an, another interesting segue here uh, to the to the story that um, du during the Tsarist time they went to UK and the chess browsers they're the only ones who were willing to sell them the, the secret of, of of cooking it and so they spent a lot of money to send all these engineers to study how to 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 to, to study how to create it and uh, the secret turned out to be they were just swirling it. Because what happens was, uh, like the, the when the glass is melted, it creates swirls on the surface. Uh, so when when it hardens, I mean, you can kind of see the swirl. So in order in order to avoid the swirls and to keep the glass very clean, you had to have a special rod with um, kind of like a fireproof. Um, it's a fireproof um, a clay a tip that you have to quickly uh, swirl the glass. And that and that uh, gets rid of all the bubbles and and the um, swirls in in the actual the mass of the melted uh, sand. Um, it went, but you have to do it like 90 minutes after. I'm sorry, 90 hours after it started cooking. Uh, so this was like the technology. So the secret they paid, I think, 600 thousand rubles in gold to Chance Brothers was that you just have to swirl it. Holy cow. <laughs> so, so they took that back and they started cooking it in St. Petersburg. And uh, so we're getting like a decent quality glass. And so they started their production. And then, um, so when they restarted the whole thing during the communism era, uh, they, something happened and like they were using this method and all of a sudden they were getting these crazy bubbles. I mean, they call it Moshka. Moshka is basically like a, translated as a fruit fly. <laughs> uh, so they're like, what do we do? Uh, and they try everything, um, and they, they just couldn't get rid of it. And they're like, we're using the classic method that Chance Brothers used, and we just can't, can't create optical glass. So they had 
they had a lot of engineers basically sitting there and uh, wrecking their brains, and they were they would they would sleep in the in the factory for um, they would basically cook a batch for 90 hours, try different things. They would swirl it a little bit, they swirl it a lot after, and they had to wait 90 hours every time. Wow. Uh, and they would get like a piece of glass and they look at it through like uh, like an I think an orange background and look oh no there's still bubbles and uh, they were absolutely desperate. And after three months of experimenting, um, the, uh, Nikolai Kachalov said like let's just do something drastic because he just couldn't understand why they're getting all these bubbles from. And uh, there were some some scientists were saying that it's because of the. Um, the St. Petersburg was a very um, high humidity city, so they're saying it might be from humidity, it might be from like weather related. We just we just don't know. So the, the, so the guys like let's start swirling this right away, swirling glass right away, and like all the old all the old uh, school optical cookers, they're like no no way, this is uh, absolutely goes against all the rules of uh, glass boiling. Uh, we're not gonna do it it's like, but we have we completely run out of options. The guy, they were little, literally a group of scientists and these optical engineers were sleeping for three months in this factory uh, trying to get us to work. Um, and so let's, so they uh, put the new new batch to uh, to cook, and after two hours they started swirling it. And what do you know? And after that, they they went after they got the glass, up and it was completely free of uh, uh, free of bubbles. So Nikolai Kachalov just runs into the director of Goy, which is like the state uh, optical institute, just crying with this piece of glass, and like we finally have our own Soviet glass, really. So that's like a kind of nice uh, story about it. So they started doing. Um, uh, some their own lenses in about 1926, I think, about summer 1926. That was the when the first Soviet glass kind of uh, was developed, and this was like right before they started uh, making all the their own cameras. Yeah, there was the R4 after the Photocore and uh, all the all the other series. Um, but and so literally, as you see, I mean, this was. Absolutely parallel development to whatever Germany and Schott was doing because they're still using like old methods, um, and so the the Soviet industry had to adapt their own ways. Uh, so maybe that's why the uh, kind of the pre-war glass will give you a little bit different characteristics, even though like they would do like if you think about the fad ass lenses, the F2, the, the commander's fad. Uh, there was the F two fifty lens, yeah. And uh, people saying actually it's like an exact Elmer copy. It's not. I mean, due to the properties of the glass, I mean, it was had to be completely re uh, recalculated for the Soviet glass. Um, and uh, some people actually say we had a member in a forum that the F two fifty millimeter on the fad is actually a Taylor Hobson clone and not uh, Elmer. Mm. Uh, so th this, this is a very interesting uh, story going on there uh, also with that um, but you have to realize that all this glass was cooked in batches you had to recalculate every single time you get a new batch you had to recalculate yeah. the lenses that's why they're so different quality I mean to calculate the lens to recalculate the lens production 
think about it, it's literally uh, five folders, 200 sheets, each, 200 sheets each of calculations every wow. time you cook in your bag. So they had like a <laughs> huge team of engineers really sitting there just crunching, crunching math. Well, and there was... That's, that's 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 incredible, especially when you you just mentioned sample variation. Was that's a that's a, a a phrase that gets used week in week out with us, and uh, I, I'm just particularly interested in that because you just said that every time your batches is is made, you have to physically make a different version of of, uh, of each element, so to speak, to make to um, to correct for the optical qualities of of the batch of glass that you've got. How just how long did that actually go on for? Um, did that go? Does that been the case all the way through uh, Soviet production, or is it, did that go on up until a, a certain date? I would say it went it went on pretty much the whole time before World War Two, or, or or maybe uh, up to even late fifties, early sixties, because during like a sixty mid sixties to seventies, the whole thing got started to be a lot more automated. Um, and plus, after the war, um, the whole liberation thing happened with um, Carl Zeiss in Vienna. Uh, that's another whole story. Um, yeah. So stuff was basically moved with the engineers, with the uh, equipment, and everything was manufactured and started manufacturing on German equipment. They actually brought a lot of slabs of shot glass. So move, moving on, we, yeah, because we've we've talked about the it's the military that that got uh, optical production going. Uh, to start off with, and uh, um, at, at what point did they decide to? Was they, they, at some point, uh, there was spare capacity, and they were able to make cameras. When 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 did that happen? And uh, I know that uh, early cameras. I mean, you've mentioned the the, the Fed S there uh, with and with the. Uh, um, with that 50 millimeter f2 which i'm i'm pleased to say i was actually trying to use one of those today and <laughs> failed miserably because the light wasn't right but uh, um how did the actual uh, photographic industry get going well the official story is in about 1922 lenin uh basically said that he looked at the western press and uh, the whole at about the time like when uh, the, the the first leica was developed there was a lot of but there's a lot of photographs being published and he's like, this is a great, great engine for propaganda. I mean, we have to give our um, masses the cameras to basically document the Soviet life to, to show how like the whole, the whole post-revolution, the whole development of Soviet Union is going and we wanted to publish this, we wanted to do contests and magazines. Um, so they, they basically, uh, they basically made um, everything was like government owned. So all these factories, uh, they were first and foremost were military factories. I mean, you have to realize in Soviet Union there was no civilian uh, camera factory, uh, and they will tell you that this is uh, like the KMZ or Fed or this is this is this is a civilian factory. But in, in at first. Fed commune was a, a little bit a civilian because it was a commune that was making j just cameras. But most of the bigger factories, they they even even especially after the war, I mean, I would have to say they were like ninety to ninety five percent military production and five percent camera production. And for, but for the rest of the world, this were the camera factories. I mean, they weren't doing anything military, and so this the cameras were a front for. A factory doing like 
like sides, anti-aircraft, uh, optics, um, spy satellite optics later um, in the era, and so on. I mean, they each each factory had like a civilian section, then and they had a military section. So the military section was completely closed off. You have all these guys. They had like all this. Um, military, I mean, maybe even some KGB basically clo- uh, controlling this, uh, and you had to have a special uh, pass to get in there. Um, and obviously, there would the a lot of students were, would start in a civilian section uh, doing cameras, doing binoculars, and so on, and, uh, and the military section would always like poach the best engineers and put them on. On, um, on the, uh, to work on the military stuff like uh, missile technology. I mean, there's like optics is everywhere, pretty much if you think about it. Um, so that that was the the way that really just Soviet Union functioned. I mean, like every everything was going towards military first and civilian second, and everything civilian was basically let's cut the cost, do a lot of it, um, and even like you can say like they were training on producing civilian lenses and later on they would graduate to produce a lenses for same anti-aircraft systems. I mean, the, the optics, if you compare optics, the civilian optics and the military optics, it was a huge difference. I mean, uh, you look at the Helios, you see, uh, like a Helios 44, you see that portions of the, of, of the lenses are, are in focus, portions are not, and they vary from batch to batch. Military lenses, that did not happen. I mean, most of the time, I mean, I had a friend who worked and who actually served in some of the anti-aircraft uh, um, division of the uh, army, and he said the this, the optics were they are absolutely incredible. You can basically track uh, an airplane full screen um, tens of miles away. I mean, without like crystal clear. So. It, the the Soviet optics that you see in this production is not generally what represents it. I mean, this was a very very high quality production when it comes to military. Just just slightly that, going going away from the the history, because I, I want to take you back to history in the, in, the, in a moment. Um, there's some of the Soviet lenses have got the CCCP. Uh, mark on them, which I'm, I've I've read, I and mean, I'd like to hear what your view is. But I've read if a, if a lens has that CCCP mark on it, it it makes it stand out as being a, a higher quality lens or or the best quality. Um, do you go along with that? Well, it's the CCCP you're talking about that the the USSR and Russian. Um, there was uh, there's a few different things. I mean, there's a, there was actually an emblem like a hammer and sickle with a little star on top of it. If you see that on the lens, that, that was a universal military mark in all the factories. So all the factories in, in USSR were following this trend. So it, they, there was a lot of lenses that made, like there's some cameras that were made for military. Uh, and when that happened, they put this mark on and it means that was for military production. Uh, but they are also, they're also made in USSR in English. So that's how this worked. Uh, the CCCP by itself doesn't really mean much because it, for even from domestic production, they would put this uh, on on the on cameras or lenses. I mean, they just said like made in USSR. But when it's in English, and most of the time it denotes an export. So the way Soviet factory worked, you had an assembly line of lenses going. Uh, 
they had uh, the, Q, the QA, the quality assurance uh, people sitting there and expecting the lenses, putting them on the, on the um, I'm not sure what the word is for this equipment in Russian, calimeter. Uh, this is the thing that calibrates the lenses and tests for its clarity. And, and so they would put it on the machine and this was later in like 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, and if the lens was high quality, they would put it like in an export pile. If the lenses was kind of like, okay, they would put it in a domestic pile. The reason for this is USSR, because it was a closed economy, was absolutely desperate for foreign currency. So they had an entity called Mashpribor in Torg, which was basically um, um, an entity that would export all the Soviet production and sell it abroad. They had multiple countries uh, that would work with this entity and uh, they would get the currency, um, the foreign influx of foreign currency this way. And uh, so they, those, those lenses, I mean, they wanted to compete on the, on the world market. So obviously they wanted the highest quality lenses to be made for exports. So when you see something, an export mark on, on the lens or like it's in English, um, I mean, you expect it usually to be a higher quality than domestic lenses. That's not always true because the Soviet v production also varied. Uh, it, it, especially it went uh, in the 70s, it was absolutely, you can't even tell what's going on there because you have a lens coming out from one from the same factory, like one after another. One of them is just horrible, another one is like absolutely perfect. Um, so it's really, uh, I mean, this is when they, in the early 70s, they basically got an order to ramp up the mass production. So this was when the whole transition started happening from going from uh, kind of like higher quality to as, mo as many we can make um, to satisfy and as many we can export. I mean, we need the money uh, so, from exports. Vlad, that bring, I think that brings up kind of an interesting uh, maybe question that comes up a lot in discussions about Soviet lenses, you know, on uh, the classic lenses group, but elsewhere is that um, there's often a kind of a rule of thumb that people will say that the older a Soviet lens is the better. So if it's from the, let's say 50s, 60s, whatever, it's it's probably going to be higher quality than something from the 70s or 80s. Is that do you do you feel that that is there's some truth to that statement? Oh, absolutely. So let's let's think about it this way. In 1946, that's when the the Soviets and the USA basically divided up Germany. Uh, the Soviets as a reparation for the war got uh, the Yena factory. Uh, the Carl Zeiss Yana factories and uh, also whatever was left. So the Dresden factory uh, was really bombed to the ground. Uh, there was not much left, but they, they, were, they were able to salvage some equipment there. So whatever equipment was there left, because they were also making context cameras at the time, and there was a lot of glass and a lot of, uh, and a lot of um, equipment. So that was also moved to Yana and basically everything was given to Soviets. Uh, so what they did, they moved the stuff out uh, to Soviet Union. Uh, a lot of it went to Kiev, into Arsenal factories, so they can start the production of uh, the Soviet context, which was the Kiev 2 camera. But a lot of it went to Krasnogorsk, which is a city near Moscow, uh, where the KMZ, Krasnogorsk Mechanical Factory, was located. So Krasnogorsk got 
uh, a lot of equipment and actually got a lot of engineers. So they, they mo moved out all the engineers from Yana. They just put them on a train and they're like, you're just working for us now. <laughs> Uh, so they moved uh, all the German personnel and a lot of them went to Arsenal to teach um, the Soviets how to make uh, cameras, optics or whatever. And a lot, and bunch of stuff and equipment went to the KMZ. So actually, if you look at the predecessor of Helios 44, which is a BTK lens, the BTK was literally um, an exact, exact copy of Biotar. Uh, so what they did is... Um, they had a big uh, supply that they moved from Yana of the shot made uh, optical glass. So the first ZTK lens, first of all, they are, sorry, BTK, they are extremely rare to find. I mean, those are the, the Helios predecessors. Um, if you find them, I mean, they most of them do use the shot glass. So they have German glass in them still. But uh, later, they actually had to recalculate the whole formula for Helios because they started using Soviet glass. Uh, but even, so it's basically the same lens, but uh, it's slightly varied. Um, but they, since the the whole production was started with Germans, they were really really meticulous regarding how to make this. And so the Soviets first learned the German method, um, uh, and I would say it's around fifties in, into into like early 60s that you would actually get a pretty nice quality glass um, just because, I mean, there was a lot of attention paid until they uh, there was a order from the government to say like, we need to make a lot of these. I mean, in the case of Arsenal, when uh, there was actually a memoir, one of the German um, former um, engineers from Zeiss that worked in Arsenal, their Germans were just, uh, they just weren't understanding how you can basically produce this many lands uh, with such high precision. And they were seriously against it. They almost revolted. And they were like, we're not going to do this. I mean, and they're like, but, but the communist uh, party said we have to do this. And uh, so they had to adapt and they had to sacrifice quality. So it, towards the like mid fifties, I mean, you would start gradually see gradual kind of decline in overall quality, especially with uh, with cameras. I mean, they had to go from like context, um, like a con exact copy of context. I mean, if you like a, a look at a PF2 up to like 1952, you'll see mo a lot of the parts are German. Like 1949, you take off uh, like a 48, 47, 48, 49, you take off a front plate of a Kiev 2. On the other side, you'll still see context stamped into it. So there was actually most of the parts were German, um, but later they started replacing with more and more and more domestic parts. And after that, um, and, and they wanted to produce more and more and more and more. So they started simplifying the design and uh, cutting corners and you will see the gradual decline up to until 1970s when it just went to pretty much like what you get is what you have i mean it's like it it was like you either get a beautiful lens or you get absolute crap uh, <laughs> uh, so the krasnogorsk i would say if you feel like thinking like talking about like helios lenses uh krasnogorsk were the original one to make them uh they made really good quality for a while like if the lenses you find are like silver color and the lenses you would find on Starts, because Start Start was actually the first camera to get the Helios lens, Helios 44. 
Um, and after that, the 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 Zenit uh, three, I believe, got the M thirty nine lenses also in um, for the M thirty like a, it was also silver M thirty nine. That was actually pretty decent quality lens. After that, they gave the production to Jupiter Factor and Valdai. Uh, if you there's a little, you can tell them by little symbol. It's like a it's a little circle with a little arrow going through it, circle and a, and a, and a bar and a little arrow going through it. So the Valdai lenses are not considered like really good quality. Um, they're saying like they're making the same lens, but the quality really declined. But then the Minsk factory, Belomo, or Belomo, how they pronounce it in Belarus, uh, started making these. Um, and those were actually pretty decent quality lenses. So. If you rate the Helios, I know like a lot of your listeners love the Helios lenses. So I'm going a little bit about the history into those. Um, first and foremost, if you find an early KMZ, it's probably your best bet on getting something decent. Then you should probably look at Bellamo lenses, um, like a little Minsk logo and it looks like a little pancake. Um, that, that one's like a second best, and then the Jupiter one, there's the ones that are like questionable variety. Let's put it this way. Just a quick question for you on the uh, on dating the uh, the KMZ. Uh, I say Z because I'm British. <laughs> KMZ um, <laughs> um, uh, lenses. Uh, I've got a, a silver one in front of me, and mm-hmm. and I know that the. Um, they didn't. They didn't conform with the um, the, the the rest of the uh, or, the, or the later uh, numbering system uh, with by putting the the, the data the, the lens first, uh, or did they? I mean, so I'm, I've got one here that it, it's a it's the serial number starts with zero one, uh, or it's got a what looks like an N and zero one. Um, is there any way of actually working out the age of those? Those those lenses, because I know the KMZ didn't, like I say, they didn't actually stick to those numbers to start off with, did they? Yeah, I mean, about like 1958 to through maybe 1962, the lenses the KMZ did were like kind of with a zero prefix, so they started from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the only way to work it out, I mean, I I not a huge lens expert, so I don't collect information, collect specific information about them, but. People keep tables of the numbers and the passports. Uh, so each each Soviet uh, camera usually came with a passport that had a date on it. So by collecting passports and and the lenses, you can kind of make a list of approximate ranges, like what serial number corresponds to approximately what year and there's months sometimes in the passport. So that's also very helpful. Um, I think they started. Um, a date prefix in about early 60s or so, anything before that. I mean, actually, zero prefix lenses are pretty pretty nice to have because most of the time you're going to get pretty high quality, um, nicely kind of manufactured and quality controlled lenses. And I know you mentioned um, the whole M39 confusion thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The reason that happened, I mean, I don't know if, you guys know the story of why it was 39 millimeters to start with. So the it all started with the first Zenit. Um, they basically wanted to create um, an SLR. It was a 1950, geez, 
like early 50s. Um, and uh, the guy who created Zenit, um, he basically what they did, they took a Zorky camera, which basically was uh, a, a Zorky was another fat. I mean, fat production was like an identical copy of a Leica 2. Yeah. So, and after the war, they wanted to expand the production. So the fad was given to Krasnogorsk, KMZ, uh, and with all all the um, the corresponding documentation. Like here, make a clone of this camera. We want to make it in two different factories. Uh, and and at first, the fad was called um, the fad was called the fad KMZ. So it had a little like a it would it would say fat on it. It had like a little KMZ logo on it. it. Was like a little trapezoid. After that, it became like a fat Zorky. So they named it to Zorky because um, fat added Zorky to it. Zorky was actually a telegraph uh, call sign of the KMZ factory at the time. So they're like, yeah, that would be a cool name. So they basically took the telegraph call sign and added it to the fat to dis- differentiate it from the fat factory fat. Um, and later, the mass-produced ones became just Zorky. They dropped the whole Fed designation, and then they're like, "Let's add. We want to do an SLR, but we don't know what to do. And like, we want to do a unique design. We don't want to copy anybody. Let's just add like a mirror cage to the Zorky. That's really the, what the first Fed Zenit one was. It's just a Zorky with a extended uh, with a mirror in it and with extended um, front and they kept the thread mount, so it was an M39 still. So they, that's why the things got very confusing. So, <clears throat> um, because you have the the LTM 39 millimeter, which all the rangefinders took, and the <clears throat> M39, uh, which what was called, and you can actually interchange lenses with them. Obviously, they wouldn't work because um, the back focus is different. Um, and later, they're like, yeah, that's just too confusing, and we're gonna go to M42 just to kind of differentiate our SLRs. When the stuff, when the later they evolved into a Zenit E model, and a Zenit B, they were the first um, M42 models. Vlad, I wanted to ask you a question back um, about the serial numbers. So some of the lenses that I have are um, they look quite old, and they're number nine, you know, number 56, something. I have one that's a number 53. I have one that's number 58. So I guess those are old lenses. Um, w- one evening I was out with my brothers and we had had a few beers and I was looking on eBay and I saw this beautiful Helios 44 with this wonderful story about how, because it had serial number zero, zero, and, and then five, seven, seven, eight, one, that it was a uh, special lens made for the communist party. And I thought, oh, this is such a cool story. I'm going to buy it. And I paid $130 for this lens. Now, uh, uh, first of all, this is better than any Helios. I've had eight Helios lenses. This is better than any that I've ever had. It's absolutely a perfect lens. But is the story, is, is my story a totally made up story about the zero, zero? Yeah, it's a very common occurrence in eBay. <laughs> <laughs> and they try to embellish the story and uh, just to, I mean, you will see all kinds of stuff done to lenses, cameras. They add all these like Soviet Soviet emblems and badges to them. And they're like, this is, was like super special edition for some general secretary and stuff like that. So, I mean, they'll do anything to sell. I mean, Helios prices, I mean, to be honest, um, five years ago, you can buy Helios lenses in Russia and Ukraine for like one dollar, two dollars, and it's you guys who made the prices go. <laughs> yeah, 
I, I was uh, the Helios where it became such. I mean, I, I I'm friend with I'm friends with a guy who basically in in Ukraine that goes around and he he they they what they do is they just they buy they go to these villages and just buy up all the cameras they can and they just screw off the the helios lenses and the cameras what what happens to all the zenith e's and zenith b's they cost more in ukraine to to actually um melt down as metal scrap than the actual cameras <laughs> so they, he, he would get hundreds of them and he would just give them to metal scrap and then he would just sell them lenses on ebay and another guy that i'm friends with he collects the difference in it e and zenith b bodies so he's like um he goes down the street and there's a kiosk and they have these kiosks that like it's a common thing in europe i guess ukraine russia i don't know maybe it's the same in uk when you have kiosks and they just sell different stuff so there's a kiosk that sells lenses like just helios lenses and um i believe it's in kiev um and the guy goes out looks up and there's like a little camera body sticking out from the roof of the kiosk <laughs> And he asked the seller, what is this? Uh, and I'm like, uh, he's like, well, we just sell the lenses. So like nobody wants this body. So what we do, we unscrew the lenses, put it in a kiosk for sale, a kiosk for sale. And he just takes the, the bodies and just throws them on top of the kiosk. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy's like, seriously? Like, I'm like, I mean, I collect, he goes, I collect Zenith E's and Zenith B's. There's like millions of variations of these bodies. I mean, can I go up there? So he goes up there and there's literally like hundreds of bodies on top of this kiosk. There's like a pile of them. And they're like under the rain and he's just digging through them. I'm like, can I have them? He's like, yeah, take as many as you want. <laughs> Your kiosk is going to cave in like if you put any, any, a few more on top of that. So, I mean, that's that's literally um, the Helios is a fairly recent phenomenon right now. Uh, it's just because it's the same thing as what happened with Lomography and the Lomo LCA camera. It's like you get the certain look of the lenses, the certain look of the results, and becomes increasingly popular. It gets a cult following, and the prices just exponentially grow. I mean, my my LCA, I had an LCA when I, I my parents gave it to me on my 10th birthday. Um, so if recounted to dollars, I mean, it was probably like $5, $6 in, in uh, the original price for it. And that's, and it was like that throughout until the Austrian guys showed up in mammography <laughs> and started selling them for like, what, 300 bucks a pop. And so this is just a cult phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> so you, so you, you talked about sample variation and early lenses related to having to recalculate every time they made a batch. And I'm wondering about ones that are, so now, well, I don't know if it's later. I, I have five Helios 103 lenses, and they all are made at the Arsenal factory. They all start with serial number 81, which probably isn't the year. They're probably older than that, right? And um, w one of them is, is one of the best lenses that I have. And um, it's funny, and I, I know which one it is because the front element has a crack in it. But <laughs> it's, it's an exceptional lens, and all the others are yeah, just not that great lenses. And so we've, so um, do you think they're early lenses and it's the same kind of thing? They're not 1981 probably, right? No, they probably are. Okay. I mean, they, 
they made the whole batch of them for the later Kievs. Um, the Kiev context, I think, it was in the 4 a.m. Uh, a lot of them came with that. Yeah, there you can find a lot of these lenses, these and the Jupiter 8M. They're very, very common. Um, they just made so many of them again. I mean, a lot of these lenses, um, the way they produce them, uh, they, they are bundled with camera. So in during the um, during the actual quality control stage, I would have to say, uh, what they do is they calibrate that particular lens or that particular camera body. So um, and because of the like mass production defects and so ever, they might be like uh, fractions of um, I guess millimeter that the, the mount might be off the back focus. So they will actually calibrate the lens to work with certain distances for that particular camera. So in some in some cases it's 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 a big difference. In some cases it's a small difference. And and but when you get modern cameras like uh like I mean those Sony's next next cameras or uh, the Fuji's, I mean they're like precision made. So when you, when you mount any of these lenses, I mean you'll 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 really notice this variation. So it's kind of like a kind of try and trial and error process in finding a good lens. Uh, in some cases, yeah, you get glass that maybe you know during the actual glass production they had some small defects and. And again, there's also some of them they go to for exports, some of them go from Ukraine. Some, you will actually find probably better equipment in UK that was exported to UK, exported to any other country in Europe. Uh, um, there's not a lot exported to US. There's quite a few, but not as much as to Europe. Um, then, would it, then you would actually buy something from directly from Ukraine or Russia just because the export quality is such a... Um, there was like a, such a higher standard in USSR, just because they didn't want didn't want problems. Plus, they had a lot of um, companies like TOE London, Technical Optical Equipment London, that was a main uh, importer for Mushroom Boring Torg. Uh, the entity would export it. Um, they actually had shops set up that they would put all the Soviet equipment uh, through additional quality control. So they actually had repairmen and uh, going through the camera. So they would get a brand new steel camera from USSR. They would open it, take it apart, refurbish it again, uh, make sure the lenses were good, and they, they would test them again. And only then they would sell them in UK or the subsidiaries to wherever it was going to Australia, to US, and so on. So I mean, yeah, that's I mean that kind of tells you a lot about what actually came out directly from the factory. I just like that story I told Johnny the other day about his grandma. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's a good story. And I was wondering if you would talk about that because um, I've had three Jupiter 9s. And for some reason, every one of them is this really stiff focus. And it's made me wonder, like, what is it? Is it a different lubricant <laughs> used in it or what? Yeah. I haven't, but it, not with all Jupiters, but with his 9, I don't know what it is. But it's really hard to turn the old ones. This is a 1958. Well, from what I understand, again, I'm not a lens expert. From what I understand, uh, the lubricant in USSR was organic-based uh, versus the German and all the other companies were using Japanese inorganic lubricant. So the organic lubricant would 
obviously deteriorate much faster over the years. So that's why like a lot of soy production is like very stiff and crummy. Um, after CLA, I mean, I've had cameras, uh, like I had a, my fed ass refurbished completely on uh, CLA that, that camera, like it's smoother than any like I've handled. Uh, but, uh, they, about the organic lubricant, there's a funny story. I was just told uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, by a friend of mine. So at the Bellamo factory in Belarus, uh, they were making, um, basically zenits and the lenses. Uh, the Helios lenses, and there was a grandma Daya. She, she was this was her name, and she was basically sitting on uh, OTK. The OTK is the QA uh, quality assurance uh, in the end of the assembly line, um, and uh, they would crank out cameras, and everything was great until she decided to retire. And after she retired, they would get defects and returns and, and all, on all the cameras, and they just didn't know what's going on. Uh, and they just couldn't fix it. I'm like, what's going on? And uh, so they called her and back in. I'm like, what were you doing to these cameras that the quality was like so good and everything we do now is just defective? And she's like, Sonny, I would use a piece of bacon to like lubricate everything that uh, would come out of assembly. <laughs> well, in, in um, Eastern Europe, those are thing called salom, which is basically salted pork fat. It's the same as bacon, but it's raw, it's just salted. So she would use a piece of that, like she would just rub everything with that piece of bacon. <laughs> everything would work great. So that tells you a lot. <laughs> oh my god. So she she was using the 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 equivalent of like WD forty. Pretty much. All yeah. Of, yeah. I don't know how that how how long that would last. And wow, <laughs> that's why I'll probably avoid some of the Bellamo cameras today. But I mean, without the CLA. But yeah, um, I mean, it's definitely a shorter kind of life on that kind of an organic lubrication agents than uh, I would say like the the German like like is used. I'm not chemist, so but this was like the general idea. Um, I mean, it would it would harden a lot. I mean, like you you would find like an old fat, you could barely turn it. Um, yeah. Sometimes people use like light, lighter fluid, I think, to like make it a little bit loose. So um, the same thing with um, with lenses. I think like some of that lubrication would get onto the um, get onto the diaphragm, mm -hmm. and yeah. um, there's actually. Um, a guy that I think I read in Russian that said like never buy a lens with us because what happens is in some of these um, like a nine nine leaf lenses uh, if if it has like that organic oil on it in some cases it would actually fuse the fuse uh, over the years it would fuse the um, the diaphragm leaves to the actual ring that holds them. Um, so that's when they say, like, when you find like a, almost like a brand new camera uh, and the brand new lenses, like new old stock, be careful with them because because they weren't used. A lot of yeah. these uh, diaphragm may be actually fused. Actually, that's a that's a point. New old stock. I mean, that's a phenomenon uh, that on on eBay uh, every now and again you'll see. Uh, uh, listings for things that are 20, 30 years old, uh, but apparently brand new. Could you give us a, a bit more of an idea what, what's going on there? Um, a lot of the company, a lot of the factories had like an uh, off-site kind of warehouses 
that um, after the whole restructure and the like, when the Soviet Union fell apart, they kind of went off books <laughs> and, forgot, and, and forgot. And then people would just they discover these stashes of like equipment in the basements and and so on. Um, and they would just basically say appropriate them <laughs> and, uh, and and sell them on, on eBay. And there's a lot. I mean, you can buy it. I know right now in, in Russia, you can buy easily uh, a Zenit ET. Um, brand new, like in, sealed with everything uh, with it um, in a box. Uh, but those are fairly recent. I mean, you will find a lot of them, like new old stuff. I, I probably, you uh, probably late 80s is the period when it's the most common to find new old stock because that's when the things got chaotic and the stuff just got lost. Yeah, I, you know, that even hold that holds true for a lot of equipment. I mean, um, there's a like a collectors will sort of say the same thing. You you're probably better off with a camera that has been well used and is a good user versus something that's been sitting in a box. It it often if you find a old Leica like that, it'll just immediately lock up because everything is all the lubricants, everything inside is you know it's it hasn't been used. So that you know, oftentimes a a good quality user is a better indication of a camera that's going to work well than something that's you know, pristine, been sitting in a box. Yeah, I heard a lot of people, a lot of collectors I talked to, they, they advise to, like, exercise all your cameras at least, like, um, every few months so they just don't get, um, like, sure. locked over. By the way, um, we're we talking about Helios, going back to that. Um, the Helios 44.2, if you, it's an interesting fact about it. Uh, if that they, they made a copy of it in, on Belomo, in Belarus, uh, and and that was actually an illegal copy. So because uh, that was that was done in like early, like very late eighties and early nineties, and and the Krasnogorsk, uh, the KMZ had uh, the exclusive license on it. So the the forty four twos are like, uh, according to like Krasnogorsk, are unlicensed. If you find them with the Belomo logo, I don't know if they make them more collectible, but. It's just a cool, pretty cool fact about them. I've, wow. I've not seen uh, a forty-four-two with that that logo. I've, although um, it's the forty-four-three, which we had almost like half an episode talking about the forty-four-three that came out of that factory, and uh, and that was generally viewed as, uh, oh. from many people, they viewed that as 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 the ultimate um, Helios forty-four version. Right. The actually the forty-four-three. Is the I'm sorry, yeah, I should have clarified. So the Belarusian version is called 44.3, but it's a but it's a copy of a 44.2 that was made in KMZ. That's it. That's it. And it yeah. and it's interesting because of the, I mean there are loads of versions of the 44, 44Ms, and, and then you got M M5s and right. 6s, and there's also a a 40 a 44M3, which is a completely different lens to the 44.3, but the the 44.3 is it, it just comes across as being a, a modern 44.2. So uh, oh, that's, that's 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 good to know that it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, we <laughs> yeah we we all like that one. That's that's the one that the cool kids have, as somebody uh, once said on the, on the classic lenses group once. One of the other things that we talk about with Helios lenses is the seven, the 44.7 or 44M7, and I think Simon has a real one, but I've had um, two that uh, I, we know are not real. They're they were they were 40. 
44 um, M lenses and somehow got a nameplate put on the front that said seven. So I presume, there, like you said, there's things sitting around in storage. There's probably boxes full of nameplates sitting around in storage, right? And it's easy to switch a nameplate onto a different lens. Well, you can run switch, but there's, some, <clears throat> there's something very interesting about the 44-7 itself. The, the 44-7 lens is actually a really rare lens that was made specifically for Zenit 7. It had a special coupling for only for that camera, for, for the aperture, for the jumping aperture. So the 44M7 is a more mass-produced, uh, like a, a, a evolution of the earlier, like 44Ms and 44Ms. The 44.7, if you actually have a real 44.7, costs quite a bit of money, I would have to say. I mean, this is usually a KMZ lens, and it's only made for that one camera. Okay, so I meant the, I meant the M. I meant the M. So oh, the I've M. had I've had the M versions, but they. But Simon and I looked at them and realized that I had not, I didn't have 44 M7 lenses. I had, what was it, Simon? A, it's probably an M4, 44 an M4. An M4 with a different nameplate put onto the lens. I mean, it's possible. I mean, there's a lot of fakes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I can't attest to lenses, but I've seen cameras like upgraded to look more uh, rare and to be sold for more money. So. I mean, and it, it's it's pretty easy to do these rings. I mean, I mean, people just have a gramming equipment and they just redo it. I mean, a lot of cases, I mean, cases with cameras, I mean, I've seen a lot of fakes that would actually be made in the actual original factories too. People just do it on their spare times. I mean, I've seen fakes of um, Krasnogor's cameras that were actually made on Fed factory using like their factory equipment so i mean it's it's pretty common occurrence i mean they try to make money so you kind of have to know yourself when you're buying <laughs> just make your own after hours right yeah i mean i've when i started collecting the amount of fakes i got it was just astounding i'm still finding it. <laughs> I start, like looking at my cameras and like somebody's like hey why why do you have this knob here i'm like i don't know i thought it was an original and then i'm looking oh damn it this is like and regular body, and they just put like a, a front element of like a more rare lens on it, and they made it like a super rare variation. I mean, I'm, I go crazy about these things. I mean, I, I, I buy like cameras just for slight little variations, like visual cues. And sometimes like, like an early version like has like a certain uh, button, like a release button, and the later version has a different one. And in, in a lot of cases, they just find an early, ver early version button, put it on a later camera, and sell it as new. I mean, the only way to differentiate them is to actually take it apart and look at, like, the coupling inside and stuff like that. So, Wow. <laughs> and I found in just last year maybe two cameras in my collection that were just like that. It's called uh, Katliata. It's like a hamburger. That's the proper term for it. <laughs> uh, so when you have, like, everything of... A little bit. The hamburger, like Katliata is basically like there's a Russian food that's uh, is this fried hamburger, like in breadcrumbs. So you just put like a lot of different components in it. So that's the name. <laughs> name comes from the proper term, like um, collecting Soviet cameras, Katliata. <laughs> this is probably a good time to talk about your collection. Um, in particular, there's been a, a we've 
put a couple of teaser photographs out uh, that, that show your incredible collection that you have and how you've got uh, studio lighting there. Um, perhaps you can tell us a, a, a bit more about your collection. Now, I mean, you, you mentioned that you when, when you started to uh, collect them, but at some point you went from, you must have gone from having a, having a couple of cameras to something being a, a very serious um, pastime that you have there because uh, you've got a what looks like a basement uh, area and it's it's it looks absolutely incredible and actually I've got a, a when you answer this I've got a, a question actually from uh, a member from mflenses.com deconvert and he wanted to know a little bit more about the lighting setup that you have in particular uh, you've got some purple lighting in there and uh, is that is that UV lighting uh, no uh, w- what I actually when I mean I, I and I'm assuming people saw the the photo of the shelling. Uh, this is just regular IKEA shells with glass doors. And what I did, I got these LED strips that change color. And I installed um, under every shelf. I manually installed the strip before I put all the shelves in, so you can actually have a remote to change it to any color. Uh, and the studio lighting is—it looks like a studio lighting is just this kind of uh, lighting setup. Um, it's um, it's the theater light uh, track lighting really right so so at, at what point did you did you go from this being just a, a, a something quite harmless to you know a, a few cameras to oh dear I really need to create something for just to store these things and then not only that I'm going to do it in an amazing way well I I mean I guess it started when I mean I was doing contracts and so I would work a couple of months then I would have a month off and on and off so in this periods of time when I was free <laughs> I went crazy I mean I need something to occupy my time so I started researching this so I'm listening to my site and pretty much buying up all, all the Soviet cameras I had and to get like one of each uh, at least so one of each I mean I was kind of done at about 400 <laughs> cameras 450 and so I pretty much had every production camera made in USSR um, after that point uh, then there were v- really a different uh, drastically different variation within each model so I started going deeper and deeper and deeper like more granular and started building this up and I had the before I just had kind of like free floating shells and were overflowing and I, my dream was to build something like let's say men cave for this kind of collection, and so I was planning this for years. Finally decided to do it uh, last year. Um, did the whole room and put in uh, was it twelve? I think it's twelve cabinets um, that um, just house a little bit uh, around eight hundred still cameras and maybe another thirty forty movie cameras. So that's... And are you are you doing anything to control humidity in there? Um, well, Chicago weather is like not super humid, so it's not that bad. Um, I don't see any kind of, I mean, I've had this camera for 12 years. I mean, they still, most of them still work, the original ones I got. So I don't see much variation and, uh, because of the climate. I mean, I would probably, I would probably, uh, if I would live like in somewhere like Florida or more like a like more of the human states we probably have to do something about it i know people uh seal the like when they do closed cabinets they use uh, like weather seal tape um they use on windows and then they put like a lot of silica gel 
uh, on the shelves, like in some spots. So that kind of helps a lot. Um, but um, I mean, I bother. I didn't bother doing it just because like they were in the open shelves for a while and they're fine. Yeah, we're we're pretty lucky here. I mean, in Chicago area, we, you know, we don't. I, it's actually pretty unusual to see lenses that are totally fungus infested because we just it's it's humid for a short part of the year in the summer basically and otherwise it's pretty temperate so it's well, i guess we're lucky we just don't really have that as a serious problem for the most part yeah it's not that bad got a, a question for you vlad um and it's probably a very difficult one for you to answer i'm guessing it will be anyway and that's uh uh and we could split this into potentially two. Um, I'm just interested to know what your favourite of your collection would be, which your favourite camera. And if that, if you, if your favourite camera, by the way, is a is a fixed lens one, then I'm going to ask you, tell me what your your favourite uh, fixed lens camera is, and uh, and also then tell me which your favourite um, interchangeable lens camera is, and what might the lens be on that camera, and and what it why why do you like it? Okay, I mean, there's two ways to answer this. I mean. I, I used to shoot some of these cameras, um, but I stopped. So there's like a way to answer it, like in terms of like, what do I like in terms of usage and what I like in terms of the looks and the statics. I mean, the cameras that are very nice looking, oftentimes are absolutely horrendous to use. Um, like, I don't know if you're familiar with cameras like Unist, which is like youth compared. That camera looks beautiful, but uh, that's probably one of the most unreliable cameras you can ever. <laughs> uh, but uh, I love to shoot with uh, a KF6 G, which is like a medium format. I mean, that thing is a monster. I mean, I had back problems for a couple of weeks after lugging one of those around my neck. But uh, it's about I don't know what is it, like three pounds, four pounds. Uh, it was like almost kilo and a half, I would say, with a decent lens. Um, and that camera and the, and the optics on it is just tremendous. I mean, six by six in general cameras, if they work, yeah, I mean, yeah. so the personal ones, I mean, if you get them in a good condition, they're absolutely, I, 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 I want to say like, I wouldn't, they're like any, any worse than like a Hasselblad for a 500, you know, um, uh, in terms of, um, the looks, of the cameras, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, there's a lot of pre-war cameras. I mean, I have a sport that's just in poor condition, but uh, it's an absolutely beautiful camera. It's, this is the first camera that was, um, th that supposedly the first 35 millimeter uh, SLR. I mean, contested only by the Kine Exacta, which like literally was like released within like days or weeks of this camera. So this is, constant war going on between the German collectors and Russian collectors, which was what, what was the world's first SLR. And yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's a few pre-war cameras. There's absolutely beautiful. The early fads are very, very nice. I mean, the, like just the history behind the first fad, um, the fad 1A so-called, and some people call it FADCA. I mean, I don't really know we call it that. Just the 1A based on a Prince Charles book classification. Um, that one, I mean, if you think about it, it was made by kids. I mean, this is the camera that was copied, copied Leica to exactly. It was almost handmade uh, by, I don't know, 10 to 13-year-old kids. I mean, just amazing to see, I mean, the complexity of the technology. 
And to this day, they work. I mean, I still have a working example sitting on my shelf. Just going back to that 6C, that, that, that is the one with the left-handed shutter, isn't it? Yeah, it's absolutely awkward. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but for some reason, I just have this uh, attraction to this camera. I mean, one of the reasons was because um, somebody gave me a, a whole box of 220, 220 film. And this is the only Soviet camera that takes a 220. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah, there's wow. nothing else. So I'm like, I was kind of like, and I started shooting it. And after that, I'm like, I just kind of totally fell in love with it. It's just like the the, the lenses and the, the, the kind of the feel that comes out of this camera. It's quite astounding. Well, you, you've made me feel very happy there because I'm, I'm going to be putting one on eBay next week. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm bumping up the value for it. Is it you certainly are, yeah. Well, and as we now know, the, uh, the the Soviet lenses coming from the UK are of the highest quality. So people should probably be buying from Simon, shouldn't they? Well, it's, it's, it's <laughs> for the most, yeah, for the most part. I mean, you can, I, I don't deny you'll still find, you can still find better lenses their domestic production. It's just, it, it's, yeah. it's like, it's kind of, it's very flaky. I mean, like at any given point in time, you, you, they decide like we need to do a lot of more export. And then this assembly line splits, and they do a lot of expert lines, and then they, <laughs> they stop doing that, and then they domestically get a lot of good stuff, you know? So it's very inconsistent from lens to lens. So don't take my word for it. It's <laughs> uh, like in a general observation that I've noticed, I mean, and, and that I've seen, like, in a Soviet assembly line. I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, like, the, the Soviet assembly line is a very curious thing, because, like, uh, if you think about, like... Um, there's a camera called Photocore. Um, this is basically a copy. It was made in um, like 1930s. Uh, it's a copy of a Voigtlander Ideal. It's like a folder. Um, so the the even after they have like the assembly line, they had everything um, like mass produced. They still had guys in the end of the assembly line, the QA guys, the quality assurance guys. To sit there with hammers and hammer out, like right before they go into the box, they would hammer out all the kinks of the camera. Wow. Just absolutely horrible cameras to use. I can never get pictures out of one of them. Um, I was almost actually um, detained because of one of these two in a Volo Museum in uh, Chicago. It was in near Chicago. I took one of these. It's a big folder and to, to shoot with. I go into the museum and um, I um, I have a bit roll film adapter for it to 120, so I'm I'm looking around. They have this classic cars. It's a car museum. A class, it's a mixture of a car museum and a military museum. Uh, I walk around shooting with it. I'm shooting all those classic cars, and there's this Soviet display where there's this guy sitting with a big Maxim like machine gun, <laughs> uh, like a and uh, they have this cool like boxes stacked up with like big like hammer and sickle uh, insignias on them. So I'm like, let me just put this camera down and take a picture of this camera on this background with my phone. So I put the camera down, I take a picture of my phone, I take the camera off, all of a sudden two security guys show up, like, come with us. I'm like, what's going on? Like, you just stole an exhibit. I'm like, what do you mean you stole? <laughs> I didn't steal anything. I'm like, uh, no, we saw you distinctly steal an exhibit. I'm like, I just put it down. No, this was from our exhibit. Please put it back. Uh, so it took actually for them they had to look at a tape 
uh, security tape to actually look at me. And then they were looking at me like I'm crazy. You were actually shooting with this thing. So <laughs> I know I know the place that Vlad's talking about, which is why I'm cracking up. It's <laughs> it's like a really eclectic, like oddball music. I mean, they have like a Batmobile there. They <laughs> They, they just they have all sorts of crazy stuff in this collection. I had no idea they even had like a Soviet. Yeah, it's in the military section. That's hilarious. Uh, so like uh, it took. I mean, I just wasted like half an hour trying to. Um, they wanted to call the police. You know, like I wasn't sitting with my camera. I'm like, look, they're filming it. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Yeah, and nothing came out, of course. I mean, like the camera, like everything, all the shots were absolutely. It was like light leaking, like crazy. And I tried yeah. to, and people first will look at you like you're crazy when you walk around shooting with this thing. I mean, it's like wow. a big uh, bellows camera, you know, like a, it's a six by nine centimeters. No, I'm sorry, yeah. it's like 13 by nine. Oh, it's, wow. It's a, it's a little bit larger. Uh, it's plates, but it has a roll film adapter uh, that you can buy separately. So you can know, never get, it, get anything out of it. <laughs> Wow. Vlad, if you've got time, I want to ask you about one more and we've already kind of covered it. So if it's too, uh, if it's it's too much in kind of territory we've covered, you know, that's fine too. But, um, I lenses, lens and camera that gets mentioned quite a bit and you've already talked about it with the, the Yenna factory, but the, um, in particular, the ZK, ZK, SK, uh, Zonar, Sonar, Krasnogorsk, um, yes. which is basically the very earliest versions of the, the the sonar that went on the um, the the Kiev cameras, which were really, I guess, were contacts cameras, right? Um, right. Yeah. I, I to me personally, I when I saw those in your collection, I, I just was like, I thought those were amazing. <laughs> so I wonder if you could tell a little bit about those. I mean, they're definitely cool looking. I mean, from what I understand, they were. They were actually manufactured from the leftover um, German glass and parts. Um, they, there's, yeah. So the those were the. So the Soviets have decided to reconstruct uh, this model completely. The model line of Kievs and uh, and and the uh, Zonar. So, so, sorry, Sonar. It's actually pronounced Zonar in Russian for some reason. The Zonar license line. So they started recalculating, as I said before, all the glass. The first zoners, I guess, uh, were mostly German with the glass and, 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 the, and the actual lens casing. Yeah. Um, but later when they started making it into um, like the Jupiters, I don't think they um, used the, the German parts anymore. So this was already completely uh, rec- rec- recalculated. I find those um, those Kiev cameras to be they are very much an improvement on the German original. You know, I mean, the contacts are so flaky, and you're much more likely to find a working Kiev from that era than a working contacts. You know, and it it seems like to me it's a great example of maybe both the I don't want to say good and the bad, but the the way that um, some Soviet equipment actually improves out of necessity on the original designs and just the fact that that's kind of what makes the Soviet stuff so interesting is that out of necessity, they sort of evolved and um, improved things based from an original design, you know, and I, it seems like a theme or a thread running throughout 
all of the Soviet stuff. And sometimes it turns out really well and sometimes it doesn't turn out so well. But to me, that's what makes it all so fascinating. Well, the reason yeah. you you can find a better working early Kiev than a German one is because they took took all the German engineer uh, <laughs> personnel with them to Kiev. To yeah, make, I mean they really left like they took everybody like with their families and and all the equipment and they really left like a skeleton crew. I mean they have in Germany in Vienna. I mean they restarted the production, but think about it. They they really left uh, almost less experienced people than um, to restart the whole production. I mean, they barely did it, but they did it. I mean, it's a lot of credit goes to, uh, yeah. You know, like the, 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 Yano factory that they're actually able to restart after like Soviets completely poached them. I mean, there's like nothing was left. I mean, you had, you have to think about it. They had a few trains full of this stuff going through Germany to Poland. There's actually a, a really pretty interesting story about that. Um, the first batch of all the stuff was almost destroyed. Wow. So they had a train going into Poland and they had, so the, the, the train tracks up to Poland were the narrow tracks and from Poland to Soviet Union were the white tracks. So what they had to do they had to move all the equipment to from the narrow track to the white track because and because this those were the times where like everything was in shambles what happened was they unloaded all the stuff all the skin and all this precision mach machinery and equipment from size uh, all this optical stuff that has to be calibrated within like a fraction of millimeters and they put it and this unloaded it into the dirt and and then the <coughs> they didn't have the train on the white track to pick it up in time. So this stuff was just sitting there for like a couple months, just in dirt. Wow. Uh, by the time they got there, um, the train got there and they moved to the final move stuff to Kiev. I mean, a lot of the stuff was just literally unusable and destroyed. Um, so they actually lost a lot of equipment and materials this way. So at that point, uh, from what I understand, they actually um, did a, 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 a second, um, I guess, second batch of um, of stuff that actually came from Dresden, so, like the the bombed out factory. So by the time that the Dresden stuff came over to Kiev, so they had a mixture of like Dresden and Vienna um, Kiev's uh, when they, when they manufactured. So you will. There's actually between collectors, you can actually tell the part. I mean, there's they, the first Kievs, if you don't know, they were actually made in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Like they were in 1947. Um, yeah. They, like they were made in Germany and moved to USSR. And and then um, and then the parts, and then they started assembling everything from parts. Uh, so you look at the very early ones, like 1948 Kievs, and like you can you can say this is the Kia from like Yano parts, and this is Kia from like Dresden parts. So this is this was. Uh, I mean, again, this this whole dirt story—it's a legend I heard. I'm not, I'm not sure how true that is. I mean, I've, I've read it in a couple of books, but some people kind of dispute it. <laughs> wow. Right. Well, I think on on that note, I, I get the feeling we could actually carry on this conversation for a very long time, but uh, I, I think we're going to have to bring the podcast to an end now. Um, so, Vlad, thank you very, very much for being the guest today. It's been absolutely fascinating, and um, it's it's been great to 
hear you debunk quite a few myths and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and, also, and also put some interest in some other places that, that perhaps weren't there. Um, certainly, I'd, I'd love that story about the 44-3. Uh, yeah, that's just uh, that's pretty, pretty fascinating there. Um, it's a shame we couldn't have said that when we when they had that episode on there. So uh, yeah, the uh, the legend of the forty four three goes on. So again, uh, thank you for that. So um, so let's uh, round off. And as usual, Johnny, how can people follow you on various social media outlets? Uh, yep, you'll find me um, in photography with classic lenses uh, in the group there. Um, you will find me on Instagram pretty much every day although i'm doing a little catch up right now getting some film digitized but i'm on instagram as uh sisson photography uh and you'll find me pretty much every day at the camera sales counter at central camera in chicago and carl okay um, on instagram as carl havens all lowercase with an underscore in between and on um, Flickr, carl havens is my name and then of course on the photography with classic lenses facebook page and vlad and thank you guys for having me. It was a blast. Uh, well, my, my contacts are, I mean, obviously my main site is ussrphoto.com. Um, and also I have a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash ussrphoto. My Instagram is also ussrphoto. And you can also find me as one of the admins on Vintage Camera Collectors Group. And finally, I can be found in a few places. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic. Yeah, you can find me on Flickr under Simon Forster. You can find my eBay shop. Uh, if you do a seller search for It's Fozzy, and next week there will be some interesting Soviet gear going on there, just in time. Um, and I have a website uh, which is mainly populated with KNF concept adapters at the moment, which I need to get more of them on, and I need to start selling lenses on there as well. And actually, it's slightly cheaper to buy on my website than it is on eBay, so there's an incentive. And that's www.simonforsterphotographic.co.uk. If you've got any questions that you want to put into a future episode, we have a, an email. Please be the first person to email us, because we haven't had one yet. Um, and that's... Um, what's the email, John? I've forgotten what it is already. Oh, jeez. There uh... we go. Classic Lenses Podcast. <laughs> that's it. So, classiclensespodcast at gmail.com. And we really should have been able to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you're, you're the feedback king so you know that's probably your yeah, DNA right. now come on um, okay so uh, anyway so finally you can uh, keep you can find well three of us and, uh, and Vlad, Vlad's making a, an occasional appearance on there as well um, on the Facebook group uh, Photography with Classic Lenses I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and it'd be great if you can join us again next week goodbye now I know Cole's not there. Cole's, Cole's disappeared, but what I'm going to be doing is just to, I'll, I'll just put in something from uh, the previous week and just, just splice it in there. Yeah. So uh, so we're just pretending that Carl's speaking, and uh, and then I'm going to bring you in, Vlad. So. Don't we always just pretend that Carl's speaking? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>